This is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. This is the second part of Chapter 2, which is entitled The Lockdown. Finders Keepers. As if the free military equipment, training, and cash grants were not enough, the Reagan administration provided law enforcement with yet another financial incentive to devote extraordinary resources to drug law enforcement, rather than more serious crimes. State and local law enforcement agencies were granted the authority to keep, for their own use, the vast majority of cash and assets they seize when waging the drug war. This dramatic change in policy gave state and local police an enormous stake in the war on drugs, not in its success, but in its perpetual existence. Law enforcement gained a pecuniary interest not only in the forfeited property, but in the profitability of the drug market itself. Modern drug forfeiture laws date back to 1970, when Congress passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. The act included a civil forfeiture provision authorizing the government to seize and forfeit drugs, drug manufacturing and storage equipment, and conveyances used to transport drugs. As legal, scholar, as legal scholars Eric Blumenson and Eva Nilsson have explained, the provision was justified as an effort to forestall the spread of drugs in a way criminal penalties could not, by striking at its economic roots. When a drug dealer is sent to jail, there are many others ready and willing to take his place, but seizing the means of production, some legislators reasoned, may shut down the trafficking business for good. Over the years, the list of properties subject to forfeiture expanded greatly, and the required connection to illegal drug activity became increasingly remote, leading to many instances of abuse. But it was not until 1984, when Congress amended the federal law to allow federal law enforcement agencies to retain and use any and all proceeds from asset forfeitures, and to allow state and local police agencies to retain up to 80% of the asset's value, that a true revolution occurred. Suddenly, police departments were capable of increasing the size of their budgets quite substantially simply by taking the cash, cars, and homes of people suspected of drug use or sales. At the time the new rules were adopted, the law governing civil forfeiture was so heavily weighted in favor of the government that fully 80% of forfeitures went uncontested. Property or cash could be seized based on mere suspicion of illegal drug activity, and the seizure could occur without notice or hearing, upon an ex parte showing of mere probable cause to believe that the property had somehow been involved in the crime. The probable cause showing could be based on nothing more than hearsay, innuendo, or even the paid self-serving testimony of someone with interests clearly adverse to the property owner. Neither the owner of the property nor anyone else need be charged with a crime, much less found guilty of one. Indeed, a person could be found innocent of any criminal conduct and the property could still be subject to forfeiture. Once the property was seized, the owner had no right of counsel, and the burden was placed on him to prove the property's innocence. Because those who were targeted were typically poor or of moderate means, they often lacked the resources to hire an attorney or pay the considerable court costs. As a result, most people who had their cash or property seized did not challenge the government's action, especially because the government could retaliate by filing criminal charges, baseless or not. Not surprisingly, this drug forfeiture regime proved highly lucrative for law enforcement, offering more than enough incentive to wage the war on drugs. According to a report commissioned by the Department of Justice, between 1988 and 1992 alone, Byrne-funded drug task forces seized over a billion dollars in assets. Remarkably, this figure does not include drug task forces funded by the DEA or other federal agencies. 
The actual operation of drug forfeiture laws seriously undermines the usual rhetoric offered in support of the war on drugs, namely that it is the big kingpins that are the target of the war. Drug war forfeiture laws are frequently used to allow those with assets to buy their freedom, while drug users and small-time dealers with few assets to trade are subject to lengthy prison terms. In Massachusetts, for example, an investigation by journalists found that on average a payment of $50,000 dollars in drug profits won a 6.3 year reduction in sentences for dealers, while agreements of 10000 or more brought elimination or reduction of tra trafficking charges in almost three-fourths of such cases. Federal drug forfeiture laws are one reason, Blumenson and Nelson wrote, why state and federal prisons now confine large numbers of men and women who had relatively minor roles in drug distribution networks, but few of their bosses. The Shakedown. Quite predictably, the enormous economic rewards created by both the drug war forfeiture and burn grant laws has created an environment in which a very fine line exists between the lawful and unlawful taking of other people's money and property, a line so thin that some officers disregard the formalities of search warrants, probable cause, and reasonable suspicion altogether. In United States v. Reese, for example, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals described a drug task force completely corrupted by its dependence on federal drug money. Operating as a separate unit within the Oakland Housing Authority, the task force behaved, in the words of one officer, more or less like a wolf pack. Driving up in police vehicles and taking anything and everything we saw on the street corner. The officers were under tremendous pressure from their commander to keep their arrest numbers up, and all of the officers were aware that their jobs depended on the renewal of a federal grant. The task force commander emphasized that they would need statistics to show that the grant money was well spent, and sent the task force out to begin a shift with comments like, let's go out and kick ass, and everybody goes to jail f tonight for everything, right? Journalists and investigators have documented numerous other instances in which police departments have engaged in illegal shakedowns, searches, and threats in search of forfeitable property and cash. In Florida, reporters reviewed nearly 1,000 videotapes of highway traffic stops and found that police had used traffic violations as an excuse or pretext to confiscate tens of thousands of dollars from motorists against whom there was no evidence of wrongdoing. Frequently, taking the money without filing any criminal charges. Similarly, in Louisiana, journalists reported that Louisiana police engaged in massive pretextual stops of an effort to seize, in an effort to seize cash, with, with the money diverted to police department ski trips and other unauthorized uses. And in Southern California, a Los Angeles Sheriff's Department employee reported that deputies routinely planted drugs and falsified police reports to establish probable cause for cash seizures. Lots of small seizures can nearly be as profitable and require uh, the expenditure of fewer investigative resources than a few large drug busts. The Western Area Narcotics Task Force, WANT, became the focus of a major investigation in 1996 when almost $66,000 was discovered hidden in its headquarters. The investigation revealed that the task force seized large amounts of money, but also small amounts, and then dispensed it freely, unconstrained by reporting requirements or the task force's mission. Some seizures were as small as $0.08. Cents. Another seizure of $0.93 cents prompted the local newspaper to observe that, once again, the officers were taking whatever the suspects were carrying, even though by no stretch could pocket change be construed as drug money.
In 2000, Congress passed the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act, which meant to address many of the egregious examples of abuse of civil forfeiture. Some of the most widely cited examples involved wealthy whites, whose property was seized. One highly publicized case involved a reclusive millionaire, Donald Scott, who was shot and killed when a multi-agency task force raided his 200-acre Malibu ranch, purportedly in search of marijuana plants. They never found a single marijuana plant in the course of the search. A subsequent investigation revealed that the primary motivation for the raid was the possibility of forfeiting Scott's property. If the, for if the forfeiture had been successful, it would have netted the law enforcement agencies about $5 million in assets. In another case, William Munnerlin had his Learjet seized by the DEA after he inadvertently used it to transport a drug dealer. Though charges were dropped against him within 72 hours, the DEA refused to return his Learjet. Only after five years of litigation and tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees was he able to secure return of his jet. When the jet was returned, it had sustained $100,000 worth of damage. Some cases were atypical, but such cases were atypical, but got the attention of Congress. The Reform Act resulted in a number of significant due process changes, such as shifting the burden of proof onto the government, eliminating the requirement that an owner post a cost bond, and providing some minimal hardship protections for innocent parties who stand to lose their homes. These reforms, however, do not nearly go far enough. Arguably, the most significant reform is the creation of an innocent owner defense. Prior to the Reform Act, the Supreme Court had ruled that the guilt or innocence of the party's owner was irrelevant to the property's guilt, a ruling based on the archaic legal fiction that a piece of property could be guilty of a crime. The Act remedied this insanity to some extent. It provides an innocent owner defense to those whose property has been seized. However, the defense is seriously undermined by the fact that the government's burden of proof is so low. The government need only establish by a preponderance of the evidence that the property was involved in the commission of a drug crime. The standard of proof is significantly lower than the clear and convicting evidence standard contained in an earlier version of the legislation, and it is far lower than the proof beyond reasonable doubt standard for criminal convictions. Once the government meets this minimal burden, the burden then shifts to the owner to provide that she did not know of the conduct giving rise to the forfeiture, or that she did all that reasonably could be expected under the circumstances to terminate such use of the property. This means, for example, that a woman who knew that her husband occasionally smoked pot could have her car forfeited to the government because she allowed him to use her car. Because the car was guilty of transporting someone who had broken a drug law at some time, she could legally lose her only form of transportation even though she herself committed no crime. Indeed, Women who are involved in some relationship with men accused of drug crimes, typically husbands or boyfriends, are among the most frequent claimants in forfeiture proceedings. Courts have not been forgiving of women in these circumstances, frequently concluding that the nature and circumstances of the marital relationship may give rise to an inference of knowledge by the spouse claiming innocent ownership. There are other problems with this framework, not the least of which being that the owner of the property is not entitled to the appointment of a crime. The overwhelming majority of forfeiture cases do not involve any criminal charges, so the vast majority of people who have their cash, cars, or homes seized must represent themselves in court against the federal government. Oddly, someone who has actually been charged with a crime is entitled to the appointment of counsel in civil forfeiture proceedings, but those whose property has been forfeited 
but whose conduct did not merit criminal charges are on their own. This helps to explain why up to 90% of forfeiture cases in some jurisdictions are not challenged. Most people simply cannot afford the considerable cost of hiring an attorney. Even if the cost is not an issue, the incentives are all wrong. If the police seized your car worth $5,000 or took $500 cash from your home, would you be willing to pay an attorney more than your assets are worth to get them back? If you haven't been charged with a crime, are you willing to risk the possibility that fighting the forfeiture might prompt the government to file criminal charges against you? The greatest failure of the Reform Act, however, has nothing to do with one's due process rights once property has been seized in a drug investigation. Despite all of the new procedural rules and formal protections, the law does not address the single most serious problem associated with drug war forfeiture laws, the profit motive in the drug law enforcement. Under the new law, drug busts motivated by the desire to seize cash, cars, homes, and other property are still perfectly legal. Law enforcement agencies are still allowed, through revenue-sharing agreements with the federal government, to keep seized assets for their own use. Clearly, so long as law enforcement is free to seize assets allegedly associated with illegal drug activity without ever charging anyone with a crime, local police departments as well as state and federal law enforcement agencies will continue to have a direct pecuniary interest in the profitability and longevity of the drug war. The basic structure of the system remains intact. None of this is to suggest that the financial rewards offered for police participation in the drug war are the only reason that law enforcement decided to embrace the war with zeal. Undoubtedly, the political and cultural context of the drug war, particularly in the early years, encouraged the roundup. When politicians declare a drug war, the police or our domestic warriors undoubtedly feel some pressure to wage it. But it is doubtful that the drug war would have been launched with such intensity on the ground but for the bribes offered for law enforcement's cooperation. Today, the bribes may no longer be necessary. Now that the SWAT teams, the multi-agency drug task forces, and the drug enforcement agenda have become a regular part of the federal, state, and local law enforcement, it appears the drug war is here to stay. Funding for the Byrne-sponsored drug task forces has dwindled in recent years, but President Obama has promised to revive the Byrne program, claiming that it is critical to creating the anti-drug task forces our communities need. Relatively little organized opposition to the drug war currently exists, and any dramatic effort to scale back the war may be publicly condemned as soft on crime. The war has become institutionalized. It is no longer a special program or politicized project. It is simply the way things are done. Legal Misrepresentation so far, we have seen that the legal rules governing the drug war ensure that extraordinary numbers of people will be swept into the criminal justice system, arrested on drug charges, often for very minor offenses. But what happens after arrest? How does the design of the system help to ensure the creation of a massive undercast? Once arrested, one's chances of ever being truly free of this system of control are slim, often to the vanishing point. Defendants are typically denied meaningful legal representation pressured by the threat of a lengthy sentence into a plea bargain, and then placed under formal control, in prison or jail, on probation or parole. Most Americans probably have no idea how common it is for people to be convicted without ever having the benefit of legal representation, or how many people plead guilty to crimes they did not commit because of fear of mandatory sentences. Tens of thousands of poor people go to jail every year without ever talking to a lawyer, and those who do meet with a lawyer for a drug offense often spend only a few minutes discussing their case and options before making a decision that will profoundly affect the rest of their lives. 
As one public defender explained to the Los Angeles Times, they're herded like cattle into courtroom lockup up at three or four in the morning. Then they have to make decisions that affect the rest of their lives. You can imagine how stressful it is. More than 40 years ago, in Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court ruled that poor people accused of serious crimes were entitled to counsel. Yet thousands of people are processed through America's courts annually, either with no lawyer at all or with a lawyer who does not have the time, resources, or in some cases the inclination to provide effective representation. In Gideon, the Supreme Court left it to the state and local governments to decide how legal services should be funded. However, in the midst of a drug war, when politicians compete with each other to prove how tough they can be on crime and criminals, funding public defender offices and paying private attorneys to represent those accused of crimes has been a low priority. Approximately 80% of criminal defendants are indigent and thus unable to hire a lawyer. Yet, our nation's public defender system is woefully inadequate. The most visible sign of the failed system is the astonishingly large caseloads public defenders routinely carry, making it impossible for them to provide meaningful representation to their clients. Sometimes defenders have well over 100 clients at a time. Many of these clients are facing decades behind bars or life imprisonment. Too often, the quality of court-appointed counsel is poor because the miserable working conditions and low pay discourage good attorneys from participating in the system. And some states deny representation to impoverished defenders on the theory that somehow they should be able to pay for a lawyer, even though they're scarcely able to pay for food or rent. In Virginia, for example, fees paid to court-appointed attorneys for representing someone charged with a felony that carries a sentence of less than 20 years are capped at $428. And in Wisconsin, more than 11,000 poor people go to court without representation every year because anyone who earns more than $3,000 per year is considered able to afford a lawyer. In Lake Charles, Louisiana, the Public Defender Office has only two investigators for the 2,500 new felony cases and 4,000 new misdemeanor cases assigned to the office each year. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund and Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta sued the city of Gulfport, Mississippi, alleging that the city operated a modern-day debtor's prison by jailing poor people who were unable to pay their fines and denying them the right to lawyers. In 2004, the American Bar Association, the Bar Association released a report on the status of indigent defense, concluding that, all too often, defendants plead guilty, even if they are innocent, without really understanding their legal rights or what is occurring. Sometimes the proceedings reflect little or no recognition that the accused is mentally ill or does not adequately understand English. The fundamental right to a lawyer that Americans assume applies to everyone accused of criminal conduct effectively does not exist in practice for countless people across the United States. Even when people are charged with extremely serious crimes, such as murder, they may find themselves languishing in jail for years without meeting with an attorney, much less getting a trial. One extreme example is the experience of James Thomas, an impoverished day laborer in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who was charged with murder in 1996 and waited eight and a half years for his case to go to trial. It never did. His mother finally succeeded in getting his case dismissed after scraping together $500 to hire an attorney who demonstrated to the court that, in the time Thomas spent waiting for his case to go to trial, his alibi witness had died of kidney disease. 
Another Louisiana man, Johnny Lee Ball, was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after meeting with a public defender for just 11 minutes before trial. If indicted murderers have a hard time getting meaningful representation, what are the odds that small-time drug dealers find themselves represented by a zealous advocate? As David Carroll, the research director of the National Legal Aid and Defender Association, explained to USA Today, there's a real disconnect in this country between what people perceive as the state of indigent defense and what it is. I attribute that to shows like I attribute that to shows like Law and Order, where the defendant says, "I want a lawyer," and all of a sudden, legal aid appears in the cell. That's what people think. Children caught up in this system are most vulnerable, and yet are the least likely to be represented by counsel. In 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that in Regalt ruled in Regal that children under the age of 18 have the right to legal assistance with any criminal charges filed against them. In practice, however, children routinely waive their right to counsel in juvenile proceedings. In some states, such as Ohio, as many as 90% of children charged with criminal wrongdoing are not represented by a lawyer. As one public defender explained, the kids come in with their parents who want to get this dealt with as quickly as possible, and they say, you did it, admit it. If people were informed about what could be done, they might actually ask for help. Bad deal. Almost no one ever goes to trial. Nearly all criminal cases are resolved through plea bargaining, a guilty plea by the defendant in exchange for some form of leniency by the prosecutor. Although it is not widely known, the prosecutor is the most powerful law enforcement official in the criminal justice system. One might think that judges are the most powerful, or even the police, but in reality the prosecutor holds the cards. It is the prosecutor, far more than any other criminal justice official, who holds the keys to the jailhouse door. After the police arrest someone, the prosecutor is in charge. Few rules constrain the exercise of his or her discretion. The prosecutor is free to dismiss a case for any reason or no reason at all. The prosecutor is also free to file more charges against a defendant than can realistically be proven in court, so long as probable cause arguably exists, a practice known as overcharging. The practice of encouraging defendants to plead guilty to crimes rather than affording them the benefit of a full trial has always carried its risks as down and downsides. Never before in our history, though, have such an extraordinary number of people felt compelled to plead guilty, even if they're innocent, simply because the punishment for the minor nonviolent offense which they have been charged with is so unbelievably severe. When prosecutors offer only three years in prison, when the penalties defendants could receive if they took their case to trial would be 5, 10, or 20 years, or life imprisonment, only extremely courageous or foolish defendants turn the offer down. The pressure to plead guilty to crimes has increased exponentially since the advent of the war on drugs. In 1986, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which established extremely long mandatory minimum prison terms for low-level drug dealing and possession of crack cocaine. The typical mandatory sentence for a first-time drug offense in federal court is 5 or 10 years. By contrast, in other developed countries around the world, a first-time drug offense would merit no more than six months in jail, if jail time is imposed at all. State legislatures were eager to jump on the get-tough bandwagon, passing harsh drug laws as well as three-strikes laws, mandating a life sentence for those convicted of any third offense. These mandatory minimum statutory schemes have transferred an erroneous amount of power uh, I'm sorry, an enormous amount of power from judges to prosecutors. 
Now, simply by charging someone with an offense carrying a mandatory sentence of 10 to 15 years or life, prosecutors are able to force people to plead guilty rather than risk a decade or more in prison. Prosecutors admit that they routinely charge people with crimes for which they technically have probable cause, but which they seriously doubt they could ever win in court. They load up defendants with charges that carry extremely harsh sentences in order to force them to plead guilty to lesser offenses and, here's the kicker, to obtain testimony for a related case. Harsh sentencing laws encourage people to snitch. The number of snitches in drug cases has soared in recent years, partly because the government has tempted people to cooperate with law enforcement by offering cash, putting them on payroll, and promising cuts of seized drug assets but also because ratting out co-defendants, friends, and family, or acquaintances is often the only way to avoid a lengthy mandatory minimum sentence. In fact, under the federal sentencing guidelines, providing substantial assistance is often the only way defendants can hope to obtain a sentence below the mandatory minimum. The assistance provided by snitches is notoriously unreliable, as studies have documented countless informants who have fabricated stories about drug-related and other criminal activity in exchange for money or leniency in their pending criminal cases. While such conduct is deplorable, it is not difficult to understand. Who among us would not be tempted to lie if it was the only way to avoid a 40-year sentence for a minor drug crime? The pressure to plea bargain and thereby convict yourself in exchange for some kind of leniency is not an accidental byproduct of the mandatory sentencing regime. The U.S. Sentencing Commission itself has, noticed that, has noted that the value of a mandatory minimum sentence lies not in its imposition, but in its value as a bargaining chip to be given away in return for the resource-saving plea from the defendant to a more leniently sanctioned charge. Describing severe mandatory sentences as a bargaining chip is a major understatement, given its potential for extracting guilty pleas from people who are innocent of any crime. It is impossible to know for certain how many innocent drug defendants convict themselves every year by accepting a plea bargain out of fear of mandatory sentences, or how many are convicted due to lying informants and paid witnesses, but reliable estimates of the number of innocent people currently in prison tend to range from 2% to 5%. While those, into, while those numbers may sound small and probably are understatements, they translate into thousands of innocent people who are locked up, some of whom will die in prison. In fact, of only one, if only 1% of America's prisoners are actually innocent of the crimes for which they have been convicted, that would mean tens of thousands of innocent people are currently languishing behind bars in the United States. The real point here, however, is not that innocent people are locked up. That has been true since penitentiaries, since penitentiaries first opened in America. The critical point is that thousands of people are swept into the criminal justice system every year, pursuant to the drug war, without much regard for their guilt or innocence. The police are allowed by the courts to conduct fishing expeditions for drugs on streets and freeways based on nothing more than a hunch. Homes may be searched for drugs based on a tip from an unreliable confidential informant who's trading the information for money or to escape prison time. And once swept aside the, inside the system, people are often denied attorneys or meaningful representation and pressured into plea bargains by the threat of unbelievably harsh sentences, sentences for minor drug crimes that are higher than many countries impose on convicted murderers. This is the way the Roundup works, and it works this way in virtually every major city in the United States.
Time served. Once convicted of felony drug charges, one's chances of being released from the system in short order are slim at best. The elimination of judicial discretion through mandatory minimum sentencing laws has forced judges to impose sentences for drug crimes that are often longer than those violent criminals receive. When judges have discretion, they may consider a defendant's background and impose a lighter penalty if the defendant's personal circumstances, extreme poverty or experience of abuse, for example, warrant it. This flexibility, which is important in all criminal cases, is especially important in drug cases, as studies have indicated that many drug defendants are using or selling to support an addiction. Referring a defendant to treatment rather than sending him or her to prison may well be the most prudent choice, saving government resources and potentially saving the defendant from a lifetime of addiction. Likewise, imposing a short prison sentence, or none at all, may increase the chances that the defendant will experience successful re-entry. A lengthy prison term may increase the odds that re-entry will be extremely difficult, leading to relapse and re-imprisonment. Mandatory drug sentencing laws strip judges of their traditional role of considering all relevant circumstances in an effort to do justice in the individual case. Nevertheless, harsh mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenders have been consistently upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1982, the Supreme Court upheld 40 years of imprisonment for possession and an attempt to sell 9 ounces of marijuana. Several years later, in Harmelin v. Michigan, the court upheld a sentence of life imprisonment for a defendant with no prior convictions who attempted to sell 672 grams, approximately 23 ounces, of crack cocaine. The court found the sentences imposed in those cases reasonably proportionate to the offenses committed, and not cruel and unusual, in violation of the Eighth Amendment. This ruling was remarkable given that, prior to the Drug Reform Act of 1986, the longest sentence Congress had ever imposed for possession of any drug in any amount was one year. A life sentence for a first-time drug offense is unheard of in the rest of the developed world. Even for high-end drug crimes, most countries impose sentences that are measured in months rather than years. For example, a conviction for selling a kilogram of heroin yields a mandatory 10-year sentence in U.S. federal court, compared with six months in prison in England. Remarkably, in the United States, a life sentence is deemed perfectly appropriate for a first-time drug offender. The most famous Supreme Court decision upholding mandatory minimum sentences is Lockyer v. Andrade. In that case, the court rejected constitutional challenges to sentences of 25 years without parole for a man who stole three golf clubs from a pro shop and 50 years without parole for another man for, for stealing children's videotapes from a Kmart store. These sentences were imposed pursuant to California's controversial three strikes law, which, mandata which mandates a sentence of... 25 years to life for recidivists convicted of a third felony, no matter how minor. Writing for the court's majority, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor acknowledged that the sentences were severe, but concluded that they are not grossly disproportionate to the offense, and therefore do not violate the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishments. In dissent, Justice David H. Sutter reported, if Andrade's sentence for stealing videotapes is not grossly disproportionate, the principle has no meaning. Similarly, counsel for one of the defendants, University of Southern California law professor Erwin Cherminsky, noted that the court's reasoning makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to challenge any recidivist sentencing law. 
If these sentences aren't cruel and unusual punishment, what would be? Mandatory sentencing laws are frequently justified as necessary to keep violent criminals off the streets, yet these penalties are imposed most often against drug offenders and those who are guilty of nonviolent crimes. In fact, under three strikes regimes, such as the one in California, a repeat offender could be someone who had a single prior case decades ago. First and second strikes are counted by individual charges rather than individual cases, so a single case can result in first, second, and even third strikes. For example, a person arrested for possession of a substantial amount of marijuana as well as a tiny amount of cocaine could be charged with at least two separate felonies, possession with intent to sell marijuana as, possession of, as well as possession of cocaine. Pleading guilty to each of these crimes would result in two strikes. Fifteen years later, if the individual is arrested for passing a bad check, he or she could be facing a third strike and a life sentence. To make matters worse, sentences for each charge can run consecutively, so a defendant can easily face a sentence of 50, 75, or 100 years to life arising from a single case. In fact, 50 years to life was the actual sentence given to Leonardo Andrade, whose sentence for stealing videotapes was upheld by the Supreme Court. The clear majority of those subject to harsh mandatory minimum sentences in the federal system are drug offenders. Most are low-level minor drug dealers, not drug kingpins. The stories are legion. Marcus Boyd was arrested after selling 3.9 grams of crack cocaine to a confidential informant working with a regional drug task force. At the time of his arrest, Marcus was 24 years old and had been addicted to drugs for six years, beginning shortly after his mother's death and escalating throughout his early 20s. He met the informant through a close family friend, someone he trusted. At sentencing, the judge based the drug quantity calculation on testimony from the informant and another witness, who both claimed they bought crack from Marcus on other occasions. As a result, Marcus was held accountable for 37.4 grams, the equivalent of 1.3 ounces, based on the statements made by the informant and other witnesses. He was sentenced to more than 14 years in prison. His two children were six and seven years old at the time of his sentencing. They will be adults when he's released. Weldon Angelos is another casualty of the drug war. He will spend the rest of his life in prison for three marijuana sales. Angelos, a 24-year-old record producer, possessed a weapon, which he did not use or threaten to use at the time of the sales. Under federal sentencing guidelines, however, the sentencing judge was, was obligated to impose a 55-year mandatory minimum sentence. Upon doing so, the judge noted his reluctance to send the young man away for life for three marijuana sales. He said from the bench, The court believes that to sentence Mr. Angelos to prison for the rest of his life is unjust, cruel, and even irrational. Some federal judges, including conservative judges, have quit in protest of federal drug laws and sentencing guidelines. Face to face with those whose lives hang in the balance, they are far closer to the human tragedy occasioned by the drug war than the legislators who write laws from afar. Judge Lawrence Irving, a Reagan appointee, noted upon his retirement, If I remain on the bench, I have no choice but to follow the law. I just can't, in good conscience, continue to do this. Other judges, such as Judge, Judge Jack Weinstein, publicly refused to take any more drug cases, describing a sense of depression about much of the cruelty I have been a party to in connection with the war on drugs. Another Reagan appointee, Judge Stanley Marshall, told a reporter, 
I have always been considered a fairly harsh sentencer, but it's killing me that I'm sentencing so many low-level offenders away for all this time. He made the statement after imposing a five-year sentence on a mother in Washington, D.C., who was convicted of possession of crack found by police in a locked box that her son had hidden in her attic. In California, reporters described a similar event. U.S. District Judge William H. Schwartzer, a Republican appointee, is not known as a light sentencer. Thus, it was that everyone in his San Francisco courtroom watched in stunned silence as Schwartzer, known for his stoic demeanor, choked with tears as he anguished over sentencing Richard Anderson, a first offender Oakland longshoreman, to ten years in prison without parole for what appeared to be a minor mistake in judgment in having given a ride to a drug dealer for meeting with an undercover agent. Even Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy has condemned the harsh mandatory minimum sentences imposed on drug offenders. He told attorneys gathered for the American Bar Association's 2003 annual conference, Our prison resources are misspent. Our punishments are too severe. Our sentences too loaded. He then added, I can accept neither the necessity nor the wisdom of federal mandatory minimum sentences. In all too many cases, mandatory minimum sentences are unjust. The Prison Label most people imagine that the explosion in the U.S. prison population during the past 25 years reflects changes in crime rates. Few would guess that our prison population leapt from approximately 350,000 to 2.3 million in such a short period of time due to changes in laws and policies, not changes in crime rates. Yet, it has been changes in our laws, particularly dramatic increases in the length of prison sentences, that have been responsible for the growth of our prison system, not increases in crime. One study suggests that the entire increase in the prison population from 1980 to 2001 can be explained by sentencing policy changes. Because harsh sentencing is the primary cause of the prison explosion, one might reasonably assume that the substantially reducing the length of prison sentences would effectively dismantle this new system of control. That view, however, is mistaken. This system depends on the prison label, not prison time. Once a person is labeled a felon, he or she is ushered into a parallel universe in which discrimination, stigma, and exclusion are perfectly legal. And privileges of citizenship, such as voting and jury service, are off-limits. It does not matter whether you've actually spent time in prison. Your second-class citizenship begins the moment you are branded a felon. Most people branded felons, in fact, are not sentenced to prison. As of 2008, there were approximately 2.3 million people in prisons and jails, and a staggering 5.1 million people under community correctional supervision, i.e. on probation or parole. Merely reducing prison terms does not have a major impact on the majority of people in the system. It's the badge of inferiority, the felony record, that relegates people for their entire lives to second-class status. As described in Chapter 4, for drug felons, there's little hope of escape. Barred from public housing by law, discriminated against by private landlords, ineligible for food stamps, forced to check the box indicating a felony conviction on employment applications for nearly every job, and denied licenses for a wide range of professions, people whose only crime is drug addiction or possession of a small amount of drugs for recreational use find themselves locked out of mainstream society and economy permanently. No wonder, then, that most people labeled felons find their way back into prison. According to a Bureau of Justice Statistics study, about 30% of released prisoners in its sample were rearrested within six months of release. Within three years, nearly 68% were rearrested at least once for a new offense. 
Only a small minority are rearrested for violent crimes. The vast majority are rearrested for property offenses, drug offenses, and offenses against the public order. For those released on probation or parole, the risks are especially high. They are subject to regular surveillance and monitoring by the police, and may be stopped and searched, with or without their consent, for any reason or no reason at all. As a result, they are far more likely to be arrested, again, than those whose behavior is not subject to constant scrutiny by law enforcement. Probationers and parolees are at increased risk of arrest because their lives are governed by additional rules that do not apply to everyone else. Myriad restrictions on their travel and behavior, such as prohibition on associating with other felons, as well as various requirements of probation and parole, such as paying fines and meeting with probation officers, create opportunities for arrest. Violation of these special rules can lead someone right back into prison. In fact, this is what happens a good deal of the time. The extraordinary increase in prison admissions due to parole and probation violations is due almost entirely to the war on drugs. With respect to parole, in 1980, only 1% 1 of all prison admissions were parole violators. 20 years later, more than one-third, 35% of prison admissions resulted, in parole, resulted from parole violations. To put the matter more starkly, about as many people were returned to prison for parole violations in 2000 as were admitted to prison in 1980 for all reasons. Of all parole violators returned to prison in 2000, only one-third were returned for a new conviction. Two-thirds were returned for a technical violation, such as missing appointments with a parole officer, failing to maintain employment, or failing a drug test. In this system of control, failing to cope well with one's exile status is treated like a crime. If you fail, after being released from prison with a criminal record, your personal badge of inferiority to remain drug-free, or if you fail to get a job against all the odds, or if you get depressed and miss an appointment with your parole officer, or if you cannot afford the bus fare to take you there, you can be sent right back to prison, where society apparently thinks millions of Americans belong. This disturbing phenomenon of people cycling in and out of prison, trapped by their second-class status, has been described by Loic Wackenquat as the closed circuit of perpetual marginality. Hundreds of thousands of people are released from prison every year, only to find themselves locked out of the mainstream society and economy. Most ultimately return to prison, sometimes for the rest of their lives. Others are released again, only to find themselves in precisely the circumstances they occupied before, unable to cope with the stigma of the prison label and their permanent pariah status. Reducing the amount of time people spend behind bars by eliminating harsh mandatory minimums will alleviate some of the unnecessary suffering caused by this system, but it will not disturb the closed circuit. Those labeled felons will continue to cycle in and out of prison, subject to perpetual surveillance by the police, and unable to integrate into the mainstream society and economy. Unless the number of people who are labeled felons is dramatically reduced, and unless the laws and policies that keep ex-offenders marginalized from the mainstream society and economy are limited, eliminated, the system will continue to create and maintain an enormous undercast.